For January 18th, 2021, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 655. At the end, there's going to be a portal. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are recreating the uh, the podcast uh, Glory Days of Old. That's right. We're going to start as a parody of Adam Curry back from the uh, the early 2000s. We're going to move on to uh, like a tech news type of podcast. Then all of a sudden, we're going to become a public radio show uh, with sound effects, real sound effects and production. And then we'll move on to the podcast universe that we have today. I swear that joke will make sense once you've listened to a little bit of what we're talking about. I'm Matt Rather. I am here with my good friends, Matt Belinke. Well, hey there, Matt. Hey, it's good to see you. Sorry, I haven't been on the podcast recently, but my mother-in-law was on the podcast, so I wasn't. Oh, my <laughs> Gosh, my... pause for laugh track and continue. <laughs> and Pete Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hey, I haven't had a cast this good since my last time back at the lake fishing. <laughs> I caught a big one. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> oh. Uh, yeah, you know about big ones. Um, I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> we veered from like Desi Arnaz joke to Big Johnson t shirt, right? It's like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I miss Big Johnson t-shirts. <laughs> Those are terrible. <laughs> uh, if you uh, if you follow uh, overthinking it, extended the extended universe, uh, the lore. Um, good news out of the Lee household. Uh, Mark Lee and his wonderful wife are uh, parents again. So uh, we'll we'll welcome Mark back with uh, exciting new. New uh, tales of raising two children in a New York uh, Manhattan apartment when he uh, when he returns from his uh, parental leave. Matt, you have some advice about raising uh, two children in a New York City apartment, don't you? Yeah, I mean, like it it it, it helps if you could uh, send them to some sort of a parallel universe that's constructed <laughs> entirely of the media that they've consumed, and so that they are they can be raised by their sort of a uh, constructs made of their own fantasies and desires, and you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> this is uh, this is neither here nor there. We did not prepare for this, but it just strikes me now to ask you if you could if you could babysit your children in one television show. You know, what, uh, what television show would you choose? I've thought about this numerous times. I would very much like Wait, 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 wait. You've thought about it numerous times? Yeah, that, well, that if I could live inside a children's show, what children's show would I like to live in? I have decided in my old age that I would like to retire to the island of Sodor, which of course is where, uh, the Fat Controller, aka Sir Top of Hats, uh, and, and Thomas the Tank Engine live. Um, it seems delightful as far as I can tell their only industry is tourism. Um, and all that they do is just sort of like, uh, toot around the bucolic countryside and have tea and crumpets and like occasionally some logs will fall across the tracks, but it's all, it's all good. Everyone learns lessons. 
Um, and I don't know. It seems it's, it, I feel like that's about my, you know, maybe like when I was younger, I wanted to live in like a DuckTales universe where you're always like flying out to some like a uh, forbidden temple to like, you know, add more money to the money bin. Yeah, exactly. But now I really, now I really just want like a hot cuppa. You know? the tail, well, yeah, that's see, like I, there's different ways of interpreting this, but before, sorry, before as the only non-parent here, of course, I'm going to monopolize the conversation. Pete, do you have a, do you have an answer before I uh, weigh in? Well, my son is so young that he doesn't really understand narrative yet. So I would probably just pick somewhere that periodically plays the same musical riff because he would find it fascinating and it would help me get a few things done if he were distracted by it. So I suppose lately when I've been feeding him, I've been showing him the BBC University Challenge and he's just been enthralled by the periodic music. So I think the, which is not frequent on that show, but is frequent enough. So something along those lines, just something where they have a, a graphic and some music that plays sometimes. Uh, he is not he is not old enough yet to fully appreciate fictional islands with fictional economies. Yeah, got it. So. I think there's I think there's a difference between where you would have wanted to be as a kid, where you would want to be now and where you would actually wish, you know, a child you love and and have a duty of care for would be taken care of Um, or a robot or a robot. Right. (laughs) Uh, My my choice would be the Muppet Babies universe. Uh, because I got the sense that they were actually well looked after, you know, there was a nanny who, whose name was nanny. If I, if memory serves correctly, uh, you know, and uh, who was coming in and, and checking in when they, you know, I don't know, made a big pillow fort and it all crashed to the ground, but then they, they got to have their sort of fun adventures as well in a, uh, you know, in a way that encouraged their independence and their imagination and yet still, you know, protected them, uh, from, you know, the things that uh, kids are vulnerable to uh, when they're playing, which is like falling and getting hurt. Um, all right, let's uh, let's dive in. We're talking about WandaVision tonight. Uh, Wanda- in case you haven't guessed by the very direct allusions we've been making to the show, in much the same way the show makes very direct allusions that are easy to guess and understand <laughs> right from the get go with little context. Well, yeah, right from the get-go. And and that also was uh, in the style of the show, sort of right from the get-go. I feel like if I had not read the, you know, the the critical edition, uh, which is to say the Hollywood Reporter, right, I might not get uh, exactly exactly what was going on or, or why it was happening. Pete, can you just describe WandaVision, the new show in the Marvel, no longer cinematic universe, though I think this is cinematic uh, adjacent, right? Um, the Marvel, the Marvel extended universe, which now includes streaming and, and television and stuff like that. What what even is a WandaVision? <laughs> so a WandaVision is a show that is similar in spirit to something like Westworld in the sense that the show doesn't explain to you up front the full basic facts about what's happening. And so you're supposed to be figuring it out as you go. So if you're watching the beginning of the show and you're like, I don't know what's happening, that's a big part of the point. Something of it is a mystery. And so with that said, the ostensible premise is something akin to either a matrix situation or a dream situation or an alternate reality situation, uh, something that you've seen a whole different sort of different kinds of variations on in various modes of fiction that may or may not have had science fiction or fantasy or Jungian psychology superstructures. But you've taken the Scarlet Witch and Wanda, um, <laughs> Wanda, Max- Maximum. Ma- 
Maximoff. I was going to say Wanda Magnitovno, but I didn't know how to construct <laughs> the the uh, the patronymic for Magneto. Yeah, uh, Wanda, the Scarlet Witch, Maximinov, as it were, or whatever her last name is, and her android man partner, uh, the Vision, right? Vision, um, who, uh, as we know from the events of Avengers uh, Infinity War and Endgame, is is dead in continuity. The two of them has been dead for five years. At this yes, point. <laughs> find themselves with no explanation, no memory that's apparent. Right. But people may be hiding something uh, and, and no context. Right. And insufficient information to operate living in a suburban home in a black and white, very clearly television show. But it's a but it's a television show in the sense that they, they don't know it's a television show, even though there's a laugh track. They don't seem to be fully aware. They're aware of certain of the genre conventions, but not other genre conventions. And things kind of come and go in terms of self-awareness. But they find themselves in a false reality wherein or rather we find them in a false reality wherein they are playing the parts of a stereotypical husband and a stereotypical wife at first in a late 50s, early 60s television sitcom. And as the show progresses, as we can tell in terms of the sort of freedom, power, responsibility of the pattern as it builds out, it appears that the show is going to go through different genres of television and or film as it kind of carries forward this imaginary or not imaginary world that we find them in. Uh, And so part of it is figuring out why are they there? What's going on? Part of it is that they seem to want to hide who they are from people who might be trying to figure it out. Uh, but it's not clear why, and it's not clear whether it's for their benefit or for somebody else's benefit or who's in charge. So there's all sorts of questions. But the main gist of it is that it's two Marvel Cinematic Universe characters trapped in Nick at Night and, and kind of trying to lie low. And, and at the same time, they are confounded both by how this is not who they are, the sort of false personalities that they find themselves kind of thrust into circumstances. And also, of course, commentary on the various sorts of gender norms and social norms that are associated with these kinds of Nick and I television shows. Is that a reasonable explanation of what it is? And it's interspersed with super creepy commercials for events that transpired over the course of previous Marvel stuff. Um, and also tons and tons of Easter eggs that if you freeze frame things and fast forward them and like dial an 800 number from a payphone, you could figure out, oh man, it's, it's that guy from that thing or something along those lines. Oh really? Right? They've done yeah. it that there's like an alternate reality game that goes, I don't uh, think it's to that extent. I don't think it's to that extent, but I do, I will say the, if there's two things, there are three things that you notice about WandaVision. One, um, if you're not really prepared for complicated meta textual narrative, you will find it stymieing, I suspect. But if you've taken any sort of like film course or, you know, read over thinking it for a long time, it's pretty rote, right? It's like, oh, man, they're all in the suburbs and they're all doing stereotypical general stuff. Um, not that it's bad, but it's just like I, it's familiar. It's comfortable if you've involved in feminist critique of sitcoms. Uh, in any way as a sort of side hobby or main project, which a surprising number of people have been. Uh, but it, it's either like it's confounding and then it's also um, it's uh, it's it's mysterious. Right. The premise is confounding. The, uh, the the sort of overall motivation of all of it is mysterious. And the third is that it has the longest credits 
in the history of television. <laughs> I think the first episode is three different credit sequences that take up a full third of the running time of the entire episode. And I think the credits yeah. are supposed to have clues in them. Sorry, Matt, go ahead. No, I was going to say, like, the credits are almost the Too Many Cooks level of, of, <laughs> of prolonged to the point where I'm like, what's going on here? Is this part of the gag that, like, a third of the episode, gradually the credits will slowly take over? <laughs> I think some of the credits aren't real because there's, like, credits for the show that's in that they're inside of right yeah like I, I almost wonder if like there's a code in the credits that people will decipher in the next few days yeah like it's like a giant acronym so p just just to really quickly break it down i have four possible theories that are going on so okay. really really quickly uh theory number one is that this is all so we know the scarlet witch has uh psychic powers and including the power to sort of create these fantasies which is interesting because like in the later marvel movies she mainly just shoots like red energy beams but one of the very first things that we see her do is sort of give people these visions almost like distract or or um uh, you know, take people out of the battle by giving them these visions, including like she turns Hulk evil temporarily by showing him something. Um, and so that it's possible that she's, she's uh, played herself and that she's like given herself this, uh, created this fantasy world that she wants so badly to be true. And she no longer, she's, she's lost in a fantasy of her own making uh, sort of idea. Number two is that this is an experiment that's gone wrong because if you recall correctly, Vision was in the process of being downloaded to Wakandan computers when he died, which makes it entirely plausible that there's some sort of a well-meaning good guy quantum. Let's call it either like a quantum leap or a um, a total recall-esque experiment where it's like, Wanda, we could send you in there and we could, we could send you into the computer and you could get Vision out, but it's all gone horribly wrong. And now, much like Quantum Leap, she is stuck in the machine and hoping that her next leap is the leap home. So that this was this was a well-meaning experiment that's gone wrong. And then the, the, my second two ideas are that that there's malevolent forces at work. And one is that like she is she's sent into this world as basically a mind prison by enemy forces that there's a there's a, a very famous superman story called the man who has everything where there's an alien parasite that attempts to to immobilize superman by trapping him in a in a, a memory where like his parents never died where he basically like lives the life that he always wanted to live um and he has to he has to basically like reject this world and like almost like you know kill off his whole family in order to escape it and it's this horribly traumatic thing that he has to do to 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 reclaim the real world and then the final one is the is sort of an inception idea which is that like this is a fake world that's being created by antagonists but not as a jail not as a trap as a way to draw something out and and it's unclear at this point what that would be, but like let's say that there was some kind of information that Wanda has or even Vision has that they can only get by putting them in this world and disorienting them and and by spinning them around and around and eventually sort of coaxing something out. And it's like that they they want the password to like Shield's you know mainframe, and like this is all an elaborate ruse to get Wanda to reveal her like pin code. <laughs> right. Um, I feel like I've seen that before. I mean, it's Inception, right? That's what that yeah, is. Yeah, it would be yeah. exactly like this. This could be an Inception is what I'm saying. Yeah. So I, I have two additional theories to add to your list because uh, a good list. And these are the kind this show. They want you to come up with theories for it. That is like the main reason that you don't get the whole thing all at once. You're supposed to be coming up with theories and talking about them. I'm sure we've only watched the first two episodes. We didn't even get the first three like a lot of the media got. So we are these are all going to be wrong by the time we get to the end of the season if they've done their homework. 
my additional two theories are one, uh, it's literally the devil. Uh, that, that the that the Marvel character of Mephisto, right, which I've heard of, is somehow involved, and this is some sort of monkey's paw situation where some sort of deal with the devil is being made, or some sort of, and this I think would dovetail with your idea that there are nefarious forces at work. Um, and, and my long shot idea, yeah, Peter, I think the devil does qualify as a nefarious force for sure. One would think so, yeah. <laughs> and then and then my long shot idea, this is this is the one, this is where like if I were writing it, what I might do, but I don't. I doubt it's what they're really doing, but this is the idea that I have that accepts, excites me is that at the end of infinity war, when Wanda blew up the mind stone, Thanos then used the time stone to turn back time to before the mind stone was blown up and then took the mind stone, killed vision and, uh, and, and then um, went on to do the snap and all that stuff. What if every time somebody goes back in time, it creates a new reality in an alternate universe? And this is the alternate universe where Wanda has blown up the Mind Stone, which has like gotten into her or something, because the Mind Stone has various uh, powers, such as manifesting sentient intelligences, right? It has a sentient intelligence. It can create sentient intelligences. And, and so vision has died in this horrible accident, but Wanda has been empowered by the mind stone and is creating this reality to try to kind of like hold things together. And we're in a time cop situation where interdimensional, uh, interdimensional, um, enforcement has come to correct the universe that has gone wrong and Wanda is trying to fight them out of this like bizarre bubble infinity stone reality that she's created. And the main reason that I would put that forward as a theory is that I, I think this is supposed to be a lead in to Dr. Strange and the multiverse of madness. And if every time somebody uses the time stone to travel in time, it other than say the ancient one who had some better way of doing it, it creates an alternate reality. Um, even to a greater degree than the ancient one said it was going to Dr. Strange traveled in time, like millions of times in Avengers infinity war. And so he might've created millions of alternate realities all in all of them. Thanos wins except for one. Uh, and, and so I don't know that that's my other theory. Put that in a pin. It'll probably never happen, but that's my other idea of what might be happening. I do think that it is not controversial that the death of vision and the trauma of the death of vision is a major motivating force for Wanda in doing whatever part of this she's involved in, whether it's like she's creating this to kind of cope with it or having a psychotic break or people are using it to manipulate her, whatever it is, there seems to be some sort of guilt trauma around vision dying at the end of infinity war. Uh, and I guess ostensibly an end game as well uh, that, that is informing the story. Right. So. And she seems to, she seems to be able to exercise some kind of power uh, yeah. over, over the circumstances, over the like the simulation or whatever the level of reality that the the sitcom reality in, which is I think the first episode is like the Dick Van Dyke show is like the fifties, and the second episode is like the sixties, is like Bewitched right. or something. Yeah, um, but and she, and she and goes from wearing a different opening, right? It, the first yeah. episode is like very much the including uh, I think the, the Ottoman that he almost trips over and then sort of phases through, and the second episode has an animated opening title which is very Bewitched. Right. Um, but and I, honestly, I mean, I, I thought it was so interesting and here it, it, it makes sense if you feel like what's going to happen is like a complete 
pour through different genres in the entire history of TV. And they're going to have like a Baywatch episode and like a Hercules, the legendary <laughs> journeys. Episode. Well, I know, I know I, I read in an interview with the director that they're that with one of the creators, Matt Shankman, that, that, um, they're going to have a full house episode, which is pretty interesting for oh, Elizabeth wow. Olsen. Oh, wow. I, I, that's great. Right. Um, Cause honestly, like I was going to say, it's so interesting that like they've they've they have a, a pitch perfect recreation of a show that honestly most of the target demographic is not going to be familiar with that like including uh, the Scarlet Witch herself that like you know if she you know was in her thirties or something she probably wouldn't have watched the Dick Van Dyke show growing up that I don't think Nick and Knight was like even doing that at that point so it's just it's interesting that like this is not realistically the most beloved it's not she it would be one thing if she found herself in an episode of spongebob squarepants uh, <laughs> but that's not what's going on although i mean here's here's one thing i will say about the show is that the way you describe it it makes it seem like this is like a mystery superhero show with some of the outward trappings of old tv but the way it plays the first episode is 90 percent played straight as a classic sitcom with a few actually really well done sort of disconcerting moments where reality seems to fray around the edges. But I actually really enjoyed how fully they committed to the idea that like, we are going to write a, a pitch perfect episode of an old sitcom with the old jokes and the, the sort of plot beats and the sort of physical comedy and the overdone acting. And they really, you know, like, like it, it really um, works as a sort of loving tribute to the golden age of TV. So, oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, go ahead. Does, well, so th- this is the like, this is the thing that that I want to where I kind of wanted to to get into it, because it's funny that like when at the very beginning, if you if you remember 20 minutes ago, when Pete started like just describing the show. Right. He described like, okay, so there's this plot, nefarious or otherwise, right? There's like a plot going on. There's some kind of like conspiracy sort of thing. And didn't start by saying, yeah, it's the Dick Van Dyke show, but with characters from the, (laughs) you know, but characters from the the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? It's Joss Whedon's Much Ado About Nothing, right? It's much about nothing, but Keanu Reeves is in it. <laughs> right. And and then the phone rings and someone picks it up and their brain gets reprogrammed. And that's why uh, that's how Claudio, you know, uh, uh, rejects Hero at the, you know, humiliates her at the wedding, which sets in motion. I mean, spoilers for much to do about nothing. Um, if you haven't seen it by now, get on that. It premiered 400 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> they were they were all robots. You know, they were all like dollhouse style robots the whole yes. time. Um, Ford planned it all. <laughs> and. And like, so to a certain extent, this is, this strikes me as a, as a, an interesting sort of gambit from a creative perspective, right? From a storytelling perspective, because this has the, this may have the X-Files problem, which is that like, it is, you know, of an hour episode, it's 58 minutes. I mean, these are half hour episodes, but so of a half hour episode, it's 28 minutes, boring story of the week. 
right? With like cheesy jokes and a laugh track and, uh, you know, and like a sort of anchorman level of, of social commentary. It's like, yes, okay. We all agree that, you know, a bunch of sexist idiots are, are worthy of ridicule, but like, I'm not sure it's the most cutting edge project artistically, <laughs> uh, to do. Pete has sort of described it as a, um, as a farce disguised as a satire or as a farce pretending to be a satire. So, okay. Um, so 28 minutes of that and then two minutes of the actual story that's interesting and you care about, right? Two minutes of the actual story where it's interesting and the stakes are real. You know, as opposed to being, you know, either a distraction, right? As a way of like, I don't know, holding on, holding on to the moment. Um, like, uh, like, uh, Donna Murphy teaches Patrick Stewart to do in Star Trek Insurrection, which is an underappreciated Star Trek movie. Like when he makes the falling raindrop sort of pa- spoilers for Star Trek Insurrection. It's only it 400- premiered 400 years ago, Matt. If you haven't seen it by now, get <laughs> it on that. Premiered 400 years from now. But, uh, yeah, the, the, you know, that like, uh, oh, we can suspend, we can live in this single moment. Um, forever and ever and like these it's a kind of like compensatory fantasy uh in some way in some way like in in whatever you know in whatever respect like I, there is an interesting story on the outside and an uninteresting story that is to say and, and i mean i don't know maybe like the 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 television spoofs a little more than than i did um I, I thought like, man, it was that, you know what it had in common with, uh, old television? A lot of the scenes were very long. <laughs> a lot of this, <laughs> like, yeah. a lot of the scenes just went on and on and on like these little one act plays and not like cutting away like an episode of 30 Rock would do or even an episode of Friends to take something, you know, 20 years old at this point, 15 years old at this point. Like the, um, you know, that's, uh, but uh, that's that's neither here nor there, right? And and so this is a like this is an interesting kind of thing, inner story and outer story, you know, sort of uh, sort of structure. And like there are a couple of ways of going about it, right? Like the whole thing. There's a couple of ways of of going about this, right? So it it strikes me that like allegory is an example of this. Yeah, of this sort of technique, right? Where there is a, there is a kind of a manifest story and then sort of a latent story that you're supposed to pick up or something with like a lot of references, you know, uh, a lot of references in it. Like, um, I don't know if you, if you tell a, a story about, about animals, uh, that is is really a political allegory. That's that's a Stuart Lee joke. I can't take credit for that. What is satire, Lee? Sir, it's like it's when it's the politics here, but it's animals. You are correct, Stuart Lee. Go directly to Oxford. The the um the animal the like uh animal things are like I don't know if there if there were uh if I told you a story, you know, about a uh, about a fascist chipmunk and he wore an orange wig or something like that, right? Like that that would be one one level of of doing this and then there are also like various kinds of like maybe alice in wonderland type of stories where like the queen of hearts is queen victoria and you know there's all kinds of all kinds of interesting stuff sort of social commentary wise politically like psychosexually like we're yeah read 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 the alice the two alice books again they're as an adult they're weirder than you uh than you remember right and that like so there is a 
there's a sort of wonderland and then there's kind of an above ground, you know, in this. Uh, and actually, it does seem since we saw someone crawl up through a manhole cover, it does seem to be mediated through a trope of like underground and above ground, which is a common trope of like subconscious conflict or something. Unconscious conflict, I should say. Um because it's not that it's, it's not that it's sub. It's not that it's operating any less than the conscious conflict. It's just that you're not aware of it. So like the unconscious is, you know, submerged or subterranean is buried is below ground, uh, in the, like in the sewers, as it were. And all that, all that poop is running, is running around. I've gotten away, uh, I've gotten away from myself. But so the, the, the reason that I think it's kind of a high risk gambit is that like you gotta work it has to work on all the levels, you know, um, otherwise, otherwise it's, as I say, 20, it's the X-Files problem. It's like a, a boring monster of the week story or like dinner party with the boss or talent show, you know, of the week story. And, and then like two minutes of like, ah, what is quote unquote actually happening here. And, uh, you know, I, it remains to be seen whether it's, it's gonna clear that bar. So far, so good. What do you think, Matt? I think I think it's going reason. I mean, I also feel like the standard for success for shows like this might not be as high as you think. I mean, the Ura show of this sort is lost, right? And then like Westworld is not consistent or great a lot of the time. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, I guess I guess I'm saying that I don't think the stakes for this show are. I guess they're high because the show costs two hundred million dollars uh, to make, and it, and this is a hard did thing it, to did do. Did it actually? I read that somewhere. I, I I I can't. So one of the things about the show that I've told my wife that I've read, and again, I don't know if it's true or not, is that the show costs a lot of money to make because by the time we get to the end of the show, which you could have seen in the trailer, there's going to be big Marvel comic style action scenes. Yeah. So, yeah, but there's no sign of them yet. There's like well, not even a little bit of a sign of them yet. No, but so, I think what's interesting yeah. is so we've seen two episodes, and in the first episode, like I said, it's it's played. You know, almost entirely straight with a couple moments where the where the reality starts to fray. The second episode, there are more of those moments, right? It feels like things are falling apart and there's more hints of what's going on beneath the surface. And I would kind of expect that to accelerate, right? And I, th- I think what you've said sort of uh, confirms that, that like there's going to be less straight sitcom plots and more of these sort of bifurcated plots where like they regain more of their memory. They understand more of what's going on. They have more of a sense of the stakes and the goals. And they're not just going along with like, oh, we got to get ready for our, our pretend daughter's uh, sweet 16 party. It's sort of like we need like the fabric of reality is is at stake here and we need to figure out how to fix this before the whole universe collapses on itself or whatever it is and you know what what strikes me as kind of similar about this is some of the complaints that people had about mandalorian another disney plus show um when it first started out which is that it was too episodic and they weren't getting to the to the story they weren't pushing things forward that after they 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 had the initial two episodes that really got the plot going with the child and the Mandalorian and them going on the lamb together, there were a bunch of these self-contained bottle episodes where it was sort of these, this sort of story of the week uh, and maybe riffing off of these old genre conventions. I think the third episode was like a very obvious sort of seven samurai homage. It depends on how you define ripoff or homage where that line is. Um, and a lot of people criticize this, but then obviously if you followed the show through to the second season, I think it became a lot more focused on the story 
you know, going into the final episodes, which were very plot driven and very sort of like, you know, um, propulsive, I would say. And I almost wonder if this is like going to be a house formula with Disney shows where like they want to start you out slow without dropping a ton of plot on you and just have a bunch of episodes that kind of stand almost on their own feet and then gradually get you into the story and then muck with the formula as it continues. Yeah, certainly the Mandalorian and this show have a lot in common, especially individual episodes of the show that are modeled after other things like other movies, other TV shows and and episodes that stand alone in the context of the show as genre explorations that they've given to a particular set of writer and directors and, of course, whoever else is working on it um, so that the thing does stand on its own. It's interesting. I, I wonder where we are in these genre cycles, uh, right? If, if we if we abide by the four stages of the of the classic genre cycle, right, which is what primitive, classical, parodic and revisionist, I think. Uh, not that I haven't Googled these and say, whatnot. Wait, say more about that. What is what are you talking about? So this is a particular theory of, of genre in kind of popular literature and film literature, I believe, which refers to the relationship between the medium and the expectations for the most part, I believe, wherein a particular genre will start before their expectations for how it will function or how it will work. And then once those expectations are created, the genre will fulfill the expectations and reach a particular sort of zenith of its own self-articulation. But then it, it describes a sort of natural process. And I don't necessarily think the process is natural or inevitable, but wherein future properties will make fun of the genre and kind of uh, acknowledge that the expectations have been created. And then we'll end with reversing the expectations and or, you know, uprooting them in some way. Right. And so I guess the classic example would be what our oh, primitive classical parodic, classical parodic and revisionist would be. Um, I mean, the classic example is what primitive would be Dracula. Classical would be uh, psycho. Right. Uh, parodic would be scream. And then revisionist would be paranormal activity. Right. And I'm, I'm actually copying this from uh, example that I'm found online by someone named Kristen McDougall who's probably taking it from the primary source. But the notion of like, well, what is a horror movie? Right. What is what is a horror movie like? And of course, these are different. There's gothic horror and there's different kinds of horror thrillers and stuff. But uh, but you start out with something where it's like, well, what is this? I guess to come up with if you were to go back to, say, epic. Right. Which is more maybe comfortable for us. A primitive epic is something like the Iliad or the Odyssey. Right. A classical epic might be something like the Aeneid or Paradise Lost. A parodic epic might be something like Alexander Pope's The Rape of a Lock. And then a revisionist epic is something like what? Um, Ulysses. Ulysses. Yeah, exactly. So and, and so the question then is, can you get the cycle to turn over again? Because we've seen this with Star Wars. We've seen it with the comic book movies where Star Wars is the primitive movie. Then the classical stuff is Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi and all of the sort of Star Wars fandom that emerges from all the Luke Skywalker stuff. And you could argue that by the time we get into the prequels, we're really in a very parodic place where everything is kind of like an imitation of an imitation. And then we kind of seek out these sort of revisionist spaces with it, uh, which like Star Wars raps and kind of people deconstructing it and all this stuff. And you could argue that the Mandalorian is an attempt to reestablish a primitive Star Wars. Oh, that's interesting. Where, and it does, yeah. it does, it actually does so by going to a more primitive or I guess almost a classical 
version of the quest narrative, which is like the Western, right? Um, right. And the samurai film. Yeah, exactly. I was just thinking that like, um, Star Trek, the original series is the primitive version of the genre. The classical version of the genre is the, the, you know, nineties shows, uh, uh, next generation, deep space nine, or I guess eighties into nineties shows, next generation, deep space nine and Voyager. And then the uh, parodic version is Star Trek enterprise. And, uh, the, the, the revisionist version is Star Trek Picard, or I guess you could go discovery Picard if you wanted to, uh, uh, you know, to, to throw shade in that, in that particular way. Okay. So how does it apply here? Well, so I guess the larger question, and this is just one framework you can bring into it, which I think feeds back to what, what we're all saying here is after you've done Thanos, how do you bring back the Marvel cinematic universe project into a new cycle? How do you even do that? You've raised the stakes and raised the stakes. You started out with, you know, relatively small stakes. You know, Tony Stark is in Afghanistan and he's, you know, the, and, and yes, it's a world spanning conflict. But like it was basically a battle for control of like a Fortune 500 company. Right. And then you sort of escalate that to the battle for New York. And then you escalate that to the battle for the world and you escalate that. And then all of a sudden it's the battle for the universe. And it's the battle for kind of all, all time and space and all of reality and all of creation and everything and the past and the future to the point where it's, it's, you have to, the last movie Endgame has to be funny because they just have nowhere else to go in terms of like screaming louder, right? Like they can find much cleverer ways to raise the tension and make it more intense. But at a certain point, you have to lay low and chill it all out and re- if you want to restart another cycle. So, but is it enough to just lay low and chill it out? And I would suggest that one of the things that if you're looking at the genre cycle, one of the suggestions that might come forward for you is you need something where people don't know what's, don't know what to expect, You have to start somewhere where the expectations aren't clear what's going to happen. And in this case, they might have like really pushed that very, very hard as in, you know what it is? It's the Dick Van Dyke show. Deal with it. Right. (laughs) Like you don't you think you know what's going to happen. There's no possible way you know what's going to happen because we have given you no information. (laughs) Right. And it it is. I mean, I feel like I'm I'm coming off as critical of the show. I actually like the show quite a bit and very much looking forward to watching it. Um, But, yeah, it's if you want to think about. You don't know what you know, you don't know. You, you don't know what to expect. Yes, there's lots of reference. And yes, it's still a little bit Baroque because there's a lot of previous information that probably plays into things. And, and I mean, you know, there's references to names of characters from previous movies and and references certainly to previous sorts of culture. But I do think I expected the Marvel Cinematic Universe to reset by lowering the stakes and chilling out for a bit and kind of hoping that everybody who's watching these movies is just a little bit younger. Sort of like how The Mandalorian resets a bit by going to the Clone Wars stories that were watched by people who are younger than us. Uh, it's not for us, right? I mean, I guess we watch them too to an extent, but like, you're basing it off of the childhood stories of a different generation. They're not going to be so bothered by the years and years and years of Star Wars parodies and stuff as, as having flushed it all out and everything. Um, but there's the additional layer of we really need to introduce something into the situation that causes you to doubt your knowledge of what's going to happen. Um, and, and once we do that, we have the opportunity to fully realize that in a new way. And again, maybe by the time we get to the height of it, it's going to look very similar. There'll be another portal, right? Inevitably, there's always a portal and uh, and, and somebody's going to be invading something and whatnot. But uh, I don't know. That's what I would suggest is that the deliberate weirdness of WandaVision is a way of forcing the question 
uh, is this new and different from what came before, right? Well, it has to be because I have no basis to compare it to things that have come before. Uh, I mean, the main one of the main characters is dead in continuity and it's not explained. So uh, it's 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 I like it as a move in that direction. I think it's bold. Um, of course, what it does for the Marvel Cinematic Universe and as you were bringing up, Matt, what it does for critique of society is like is is interesting and present, but not groundbreaking uh, and, uh, you know, well done, but not like staggering. Uh, it's mostly notable in that respect as a, as a Nick and Knight show because Paul Bettany's really funny, which is not what he, you know, I guess he does get to come across and do that a lot uh, in the other movies more than you would have thought. But because um, he's the original voice of Jarvis, right? That's right. Yeah. And he was funny as Jarvis, even though Vision is less funny than Jarvis. Sure. The, I mean, and um, even just the kind of it's funny and they, they mine it for humor, the kind of like droll response to events, right? I mean, Blinky, what do you think about because you I think you are thinking about this much more in terms of the Marvel Cinematic Universe tradition, uh, probably because you haven't taken as many theater studies courses that make you like watch alternative versions of things where characters are trapped as 50s housewives, which I feel like I've seen a bunch of times, but couldn't put my finger on any one of them in particular. Uh, Pete, Pete, it's groundbreaking. It's Ibsen's A Doll's House, (laughs) but she's trapped in 1950s conformity. Right. No, no, listen to it. Listen to it. It's it's true West, right? Okay. Except it takes place in the suburbs of New Jersey instead of in the West. Wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. It's it's the Divine Comedy, except it happens in a fifties household, and and Virgil is a fifties housewife. Okay, okay. Uh, so listen, it's here. Here's what it is. <laughs> it's it's the Iliad and the Odyssey, but in reverse order. Right. And in the first six books, it's this long vision with a huge, sexy interlude in book four in Carthage. (laughs) Right. And then in the second, we're just going to throw it out. And there's a whole new villain named Turnus that shows up. And then it's the Iliad. It's a martial epic. And then then in the third one, there's a bunch of teddy bears called the Ewoks and they fight the Trojans. (laughs) The merchandising is good. Every single one of them is either a dominatrix or a 50s housewife because it's a college theater. It's book four. It's book. (laughs) (laughs) Or a man in a loincloth, to be fair. Uh, Oh, yes. I resemble that remark. It's (laughs) look, it's book four of the Aeneid, but but Dido is a 50s houswife. It's 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 home improvement with Tim Allen as Tim Taylor. But Tim Taylor is a 50s housewife <laughs> instead of a man, right? And it's all genderqueer, and he's going, oh, 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 right? But there's an echo of it that's the tittering of a bridge club that was recorded from actual dead people, right? And it's all just a critique of power, more power. And instead of putting his head over a fence, Wilson sticks his head through a fountain uh, because it's a critique of femininity is what it is. It's uh, it's it's home is does the home why are we so focused on improving the home uh, the home improvement right Sh- shouldn't the, shouldn't we be tearing down and reconstructing the home from the foundation right isn't so, that really what it's about so here's what it everybody is everybody needs to ask what raymond is doing with himself <laughs> here's what it is it's home improvement and it's exactly the same show we're just going to perform the scripts verbatim but it's set in a post-apocalyptic wasteland <laughs> And the only thing that is standing is the titular home. Uh, and ah. that's, uh, you know, and that's why maybe there's nefarious, uh, maybe, maybe it's a dream. Maybe it's yeah. a plot by Hydra. Here's the thing. I've 
come up can with the, a lot of these the ideas. that he's trying to restore be like a Mad Max style uh, armored roadster? Right. Yeah. And it's yeah. and it turns out like Mad Max style. There's a whole bunch of blood boys down in the down in the basement. And that's because it's about society. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, this is my uh, so this is my senior thesis, guys. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I laugh at it like I didn't do it. <laughs> You know, like, you know, physician heal thyself in terms of, but again, I'm not, again, we come here, we come here to praise WandaVision, not to bury it. Uh, but but, but we, come here, we come here to praise college theater, not to bury it. I, I would suggest that for a lot of people who are watching WandaVision and are finding it to be creative and interesting and cool, who maybe haven't seen a whole bunch of the kind of projects that we're talking about. Uh, great, because that means those projects did their job and kind of explored what did and didn't work. Right. And so now you get to see what that's, you know, kind of had enough time in rehearsal, uh, which none of those other projects ever did. Uh, so that's uh, I guess that's part of what it boils down to. Again, I'm not alluding to specific things, but sorry, uh, I was trying to toss it to Belinky and then I found myself going down a rabbit hole of uh, of taming of the shrew in, in, in with whips and chains uh, kinds of productions of things. Um, so Marvel Cinematic Universe. The, clearly, the most important thing here is to save the Marvel Cinematic Universe from no, it. No, I I, honestly, I had vivid flashbacks to a production where you were uh, the ghost of Leif Erikson. Yes, 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 mm. yes. But <laughs> you can you can get into that if, if, for, for the uh, as a bonus episode. I, yeah, I have to. I feel like I have, we've talked about it on the podcast multiple times. I had a thing in college about playing dead authority figures and ghosts of authority figures and like high concepts you know, highly presentational and nonlinear narrative plays that lasted between three and four hours. Um, you know, I didn't turn it into a, into a profession, <laughs> but, but it was something that I did with my spare time in college that I enjoyed and found fulfilling to an extent, sometimes more than others, uh, at least in part because, uh, you know, the, that beard took like an hour and a half to put on every day. But is, the point isn't that is funny? that all we needed, all we needed was a quarantine and then we would have <laughs> giant bushy beards to do, to do uh, all well, these, all these plays in. So, so here's a question. So part of what makes this funny is the, is that when you're seeking out is that there's an academic perspective in these sorts of juxtapositions that we're thinking back to and that we've encountered in the theater over the years, wherein I would suggest that, uh, what the the phrase that comes to mind is something along the lines of like the answer precedes the question, right? Like you you determine that you want to make a certain specific sort of of point about the source material, and you kind of search for a way to juxtapose the source material against something else, so that you can arrive at the point that you're trying to make. Which I think one of the ways that you would construct a sort of intellectual academic exercise in theater, whether it's in an academic setting or in a kind of austere you know adult setting right not like an adult adult setting but like an adult setting uh you 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 might say okay i don't think that uh you know what i guess the doll's house is i don't want to produce a doll's house with a bunch of 19th century furniture i mean there's lots of really great examples of this i mean that that you could you could go see i think there was um Oh, I'm like blanking on any of them specifically, but you know what I'm talking like, like, like when they redid the Lion King as a bunch of like African puppetry or like, you know, and all that stuff. Right. Like on Broadway. And it's like, oh, no, what if all the animals are in this sort of traditional Japanese, not African puppetry, it's like a Japanese puppetry style. But we have kind of more Africanization of the song and the performance. And we juxtapose all these different kinds of traditions into it. It's like and that's the same sort of thing, except 
though it's all more composed it's more professional it's more adult it's more mature uh but when we've encountered it there's a sort of very uh kind of jammed in uh, uh montage kind of effect where it's like it's this but this it's this but this so wandavision has that and i think it's doing it on purpose as an alienation effect to an extent but i would i would ask this question um how is wandavision wherein we are taking characters that we know and we are looking at them in these situations from these classic tv shows and let's and let's just say that the because ele- the element of mystery is very minor at this point in the show Mad Men feels kind of similar to WandaVision is what I'm kind of getting at. If you think about what it feels like to watch Mad Men, which was itself a very self-conscious historical period piece about not just old life, but also old television and old media. Right. What are the salient differences in the construction, deconstruction, presentation of something like WandaVision from something like Mad Men? Um, because it feels feels like we've done this before, but this is different. And that's the thing that comes to mind as the most similar uh, in terms of like, this is a deconstruction of suburban and urban, you know, privileged, uh, slicked hair life in the 50s and 60s, right? Um, and, and, and we're going to import our modern values onto it, like Downton Abbey, right? Uh, in, in its own time period. Uh, but, but it's going to have this sort of deep sense of alienation from its source materials. So you never make the mistake that we actually approve of anything that's happening. Uh, but we also love it so much. So we're going to relish in the things that make it enjoyable, uh, such as the specific sorts of jokes that you maybe don't get to tell as much anymore. Um, I mean, it's, I mean it, it's interesting. So Mad Men is obviously sort of a deep dive into the the culture and the atmosphere of the 60s, whereas WandaVision is all about the pop culture and the genre conventions, right? And so it's like, I, I don't feel that, I don't feel like WandaVision has a lot to to comment on like what the 50s and 60s were actually like. I think it has a lot to say about storytelling in television and in a meta sense about like the Marvel Cinematic Universe in general, that it's 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 a a, a TV show about TV shows, right? Which I think it's, uh, you know, which which sounds like just insufferably navel gazing, but at the same time, you got to keep in mind that we are pretty deep in a in the project known as the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We're twenty plus movies in, and I think it's important to. I am sure that the Marvel people uh, are looking at the example of the X Men franchise as a chilling cautionary tale. Right, the X Men franchise started in the year two thousand with X Men, so eight years earlier than the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and just finally died. But it really, it really was dead for the last few years. It just took forever for them to release the new mutants. But it wasn't until this summer that it they came released... out this year, Matt. The yeah, best no, it, year it, for movies. It literally, it's, it's. Um, <laughs> you can still like get it on pay per view now. But um, yeah, it, it, it and technically, although in in um, in in terms of time, it was twenty years of technically this one cinematic universe before they finally ran out of steam. It only went thirteen movies, so Marvel's already already doubled anything that the X-Men franchise tried, but I'm sure they're thinking about like, why did that run out of steam? And I mean, I feel like the short answer to that question is there's only so many times that you can watch Magneto lift something heavy and metal before it sort of loses the awe-inspiring thrill. <laughs> um, and it is like, you know, in every single movie, they had to come up with something heavy and metal for him to lift, whether it was the Golden Gate Bridge or, 
the submarine or, you know, it, and it was just, stadium. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And it was like, literally like you could see that they were sitting around in a room being like, we're doing another X-Men movie. Once something heavy and metal Magneto could live. <laughs> and it's, and they didn't, they didn't feel audiences would tolerate, or they didn't feel like they knew how to tell a radically different kind of story or even better to tell a story about a completely different group of characters. Although ironically, until the very end, the very last movie, right. That got released the new mutants. I mean, even down to its title is sort of like, we finally have the courage probably after looking at the Marvel cinematic universe and how they didn't hesitate to mix it up and they didn't hesitate to invest heavily in guardians of the galaxy. They didn't feel like Iron Man needed to be the, the, um, you know, the, the linchpin of every single movie to get audiences invested in it, that they finally were just sort of like, what if we tried a completely different genre with a completely different group of characters? And I'm sure that if the New Mutants, in some parallel universe, right, in some WandaVision-esque universe, where the New Mutants was like the big hit of 2020, um, there are plans that like maybe the New Mutants will meet Deadpool, maybe they'll meet uh, James McAvoy. Who knows what the, the New Mutants could do next, you know? Um but it, it never got there. But I do think that um, when Marvel seems to be very self-consciously trying to do different types of stories with different types of characters. Um, but at the same time, and I think the key thing is that you have to keep hold of like what, what needs to be consistent. Because I also feel like like DC, to some extent, is trying that. Like Wonder Woman and Aquaman... And, you know, the upcoming gritty uh, Robert Pattinson Batman movie, or even, you know, the Joker, right, which is technically, I don't know if it's, it's part of that connected universe, but it is a DC movie. Those are very different movies, right? And and I think some of them work very well on their own, but they certainly don't feel connected, right? Even when they are connected and they have characters that go between them, they don't feel like they're part of one artistic project. And something the Marvel Universe has always done well that I think is very difficult to replicate, even very difficult to articulate like how it works is that like in these movies which are radically different, such as like let's say compare like The Winter Soldier, which is sort of like a 70s as conspiracy thriller, uh, this sort of spy thing, um, and Guardians of the Galaxy, which is this big, bright, colorful sort of Star Wars, uh, you know, galaxy expanding adventure. There is kind of this this DNA that's shared, and they do kind of feel like they share in the same universe, and it doesn't feel too much of a force when um, you have uh, Rocket Raccoon meet the Winter Soldier, and that actually happens, and it doesn't feel like this is weird. It feels like, oh, this is fun that those characters finally got to meet and exchange these sort of one-liners. Um, and yeah, I mean, I feel like this is sort of like another almost creative dare they've given themselves is that like how weird a TV show could they, cause honestly, like, you know, if you had said back in, you know, 2010 or something that like, Oh, when Marvel comes to, t- or I suppose, you know, even more to the fact that like, you know, Marvel's come to TV before with the daredevil show, right. Or the Jessica Jones, the Luke Cage show. And I think those are attempts to tell more traditional superhero stories, but just with a smaller scale, you know, largely because they have a smaller budget, right? Because, like, Daredevil doesn't have Spider-Man money, and so they can't have Spider-Man level action. It needs to be sm- uh, grittier and feel differently, but it's still a recognizably a superhero story with an origin story and a sort of redemption arc. And this feels very different. Um, 
And I think that, I don't know, to some extent, I could almost see them trying to stave off this sort of exhaustion and this sort of superhero fatigue. And, um, you know, if not looking back to what happened to X-Men, looking back to what happened to cowboy TV shows at the end of the 60s, right? There was a time when, like, you know, every network had a whole bunch, you know, like Stagecoach and Maverick and Bonanza and all that. And at a certain point, for some reason, audiences just had enough of it and couldn't stand it. And it just became, um, you know, derided to the point where, like, you couldn't get another cowboy show on TV until... Ooh, that's a good question. You know, so after the year nineteen, you know, nineteen seventy-five, you know, does Walker Texas Ranger count? Probably not. What? What do you mean? Why would it not count? Well, it's as, not as, the same as, kind as of an Western, actual right? as a genre. Was uh, what about the uh, the Invesco, the Adventures of Briscoe County? <laughs> does that count? <laughs> does Doctor Quinn, Medicine Woman, count as a Western? Uh, Maybe. Uh, but, well, I mean, what? Are, so the Western. I mean, I know what you're saying, though. It's not the same. Having one or two, you know, having just because Unforgiven and The Quick and the Dead and stuff came out doesn't mean that the Western I'm, I'm is the same. TV. I guess yeah, that was exactly. TV shows, right? Like yeah. Westerns used to be all over TV and then yeah. all of a sudden like nobody. And partially it's because I think it, the the infrastructure to support them, you know, there was a whole, you know, a series of sets already built. There was like as stables and stables of horses and genre costumes and all that stuff. And so it was, it was relatively cheap to produce Westerns in Hollywood because Hollywood was doing it. And once Hollywood's no longer in the business to do it, suddenly it becomes a lot more expensive to mount a, to mount Deadwood. You know what I mean? Because they don't have that backlot already set up to go and do the, the uh, lamented never shot season four of Deadwood. Right. Um, but I do kind of wonder whether the Marvel people are desperately afraid that they're going to just milk this cow to death. And, and at some point, like nobody's gonna have any more stomach for just these, uh, special effect punch fests. And as a result, they're not giving you what you might expect, which is like, you know, superhero characters having superhero fights. They're giving you something completely different. The idea of being that they're trying not to fatigue you. Yeah, they're trying not to fatigue you by having like, you know, and, and our honestly, like maybe look at it this way is that like they're going to continue to produce movies where there are superhero fights. And so and that is not what TV is for. Right. That, that like Marvel does not is not going to wow you with the same sort of fight choreography and special effects porn that you see on the big screen, but on your small screen on a week by week basis, they're going to give you something else that you can't get on the big screen. And, and honestly, I don't think we can fully articulate what that thing is because like Pete said, it is, it is, I do think that we're getting some large scale or larger scale action by the end. I think that the, the special effects budget is probably fairly heavily backloaded, but it's, I, I wonder how much it it sort of slides into this very comfortable template of like, you know, you were saying sort of half jokingly that like, oh, there'll probably be a portal, right? <laughs> that it has to open or they have to close. There was one at the end of the second episode, I guess, but yeah, not enough exactly. came through it. But it's like yeah. how much of this is gonna be like, we you know the portal is only open for another minute. You've gotta you gotta say your final goodbye to vision and get through or else the whole universe collapse. Like that's kind of what we expect. Right. Um, and I do sort of wonder how much they're going to subvert that by going in a stranger direction. Right. right whether right. like inevitably, like even though like the actual, this sort of like episode of the week might be like, oh, we're doing like a fun full house episode at the end, there's going to be a portal. 
Like, at the, the finale, it's like they're going to revert to type and give us something that, like, you know, come full circle into something that feels very familiar. It's, I mean, it coming full circle to, to something that feels very familiar is the... Um, it's the kind of the stock and trade of episodic television, isn't it? Right. Like, whereas as uh, cinematic stories about are about crisis and catharsis, television, serialized storytelling is about like the people you want to the people you want to spend your time with over and, you know, over and over and over. Like Bart is still 11 years old or whatever he is uh, at 30 some odd years later. Um, and so, like, this is I. I'm I'm like I'm I'm really interested in in what you're talking about because it's sort of like okay how do you what is the Marvel DNA what is it the set of characters is it an outlook is it that you know there are conspiracies is it like the the uh intergalactic aspects of it and then like how do we do how do we do it? what does a western look like in this um you know, in this uh, kind of milieu, what is uh, what does a sitcom look like in in this milieu? And like to to a certain extent, like I guess they tried it with Agents of Shield, where it was like, um, where it was like, here's a workplace, here's a like a workplace comedy, you know. And you know what they ended up doing? Genre parodies, right? Like they ended up doing, they ended up like going to the future and like doing a sci fi show, and then I think going back to like going back to prohibition New York or something like that and doing a, doing a, a prohibition show. Right. So it, it became this, like this sort of this parodic thing. And that's, that's, uh, uh, that's not, um, a new move. I mean, I made the joke earlier that was like Virgil's move in the, in the Aeneid that like, Hey, we're going to do, you know, it's, it's great because it's an, it's an odyssey and an Iliad. Uh, but um, how, you know, how how they cash this out and sort of how it goes, whether it becomes, you know, is satisfying by the end or, uh, you know, whether it, it is ultimately sort of catharsis based or sort of episodic uh, and, you know, reverts to the mean will be be interesting to see. Pete, why don't I give the, the parting word to you since we're uh, about ready to wrap up? Oh, OK. Um, so well, just, just we... one just one word, just the parting one word. word, just just, you know. The party <laughs> word is is Modoc. No. <laughs> that's all you have to say. Modoc. Ooh. <laughs> WandaVision. Ooh. I want to see who Kramer is in the Seinfeld episode. That's that's uh what else to. No, I guess the the part the party word for now is that uh are are it will with these kinds of shows by the time we're at the end of it it's going to look fundamentally different than it does now I, I think it always does and we'll all of course think certain things will be obvious that weren't obvious before and so i'm interested in this capsule reaction to what this is but i'm also interested in revisiting it later when we know what one division turns out to be and see whether it did call to question the things that we expected it to call into question um or whether it ended up you know being more or less predictable than we thought. Um, yeah, it's 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 interesting. We usually wait till the end of a show to do an episode like this, because then we know that if we haven't watched it all the way to the end, we're not missing things that our listeners have heard. Um, but in this case, the beginning seems in itself 
perhaps even more interesting than the ending because of its strangeness and because of its strange time period at a point where the movie theaters around here, we, we aren't even going to go see any movies that come out, whether they're, you know, the new mutants or not. So um, I look forward to seeing where this is going, if only because I can go back to a movie theater again. Right. Um, yeah, I, for so. one, welcome our new Disney. Uh, welcome our new Disney overlords. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's, I mean, new. <laughs> this is good. I mean, ever, ever expanding, I guess, in the reach of their yeah. empire. All right. Let's leave it there. This has been Overthinking It. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Matt and Pete, for uh, this awesome conversation about WandaVision. Maybe we will. Maybe we will come back and do it, but we will do it in a completely different genre of podcast. Uh, all right. We'll uh, be back next week with more Overthinking Until then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. I'm Alan Mankey, and this is Overthinking It Podcast. Does nobody listen to lore besides me? (laughs) It's always like he's he's always like, uh, you know, time. Time moves forward, but also backwards, like a river, but also like a door, like a window, but also like a pizza in a way that it has toppings and, and it can be deep. In Chicago, but also other places. I'm Alan Mankey, and this is Lore. Anyway, that's what we're doing for our next one, so get ready. Got it. Woo-hoo! Good. I, I was worried I was going to have to do a like an Ira Glass voice, and that could be yeah, offensive was, really fast. It was either that. For, I was going to try to do stereo, but for some reason, Lore stuck. If you guys have not listened to just listen to the first like three minutes of any episode of Lore. It's, it's wonderful. I don't listen to podcasts that we don't do. God damn it.